Good morning. It's a pleasure to see each one here. I pray that we will gain a blessing. If you are here perhaps for the first meeting today, your first meeting, let me just fill you in a little bit. Previous speakers have been tracing the great controversy down through history. We began with the fall of Lucifer and the temptation in the garden. We've worked our way on down <coughs> through the various episodes, looking at the life of Christ and of his sacrifice on the cross. We're going to continue that historical progression. Jumping ahead, however, more than a millennium, we're going to come down to the time of the Reformation. There are many lessons that we could draw from the Reformation. This morning I just want to focus on perhaps the simplest of them. our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we invite your presence and your spirit. So much history, so much divine, sacred history, so many lessons, and yet preserve in our hearts and in our minds the simplicity of what it means to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you'll turn with me to the third chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And Jesus says to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These things says he who, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive. But you are dead. not a very promising beginning, is it? It may be a surprise, but this is the church of the Reformation. <laughs> what, what's, what's up with that? We look at the Reformation as a, a highlight of sacred history. But scripture tells us they have a name that they are alive, but they were dead. Well, one thing to remember is that anytime you try to encapsulate a, a long period of time into a few verses, you're going to have to cut a few corners and not address every detail. So I wouldn't think that this would apply with equal force to everyone at every point in time. And yet, there is this comment. This may be especially difficult, in a sense, for Seventh-day Adventists 
in a peculiar way because hopefully, and if not, I sincerely recommend that you read Great Controversy. And when you read the chapters on the Reformation, you don't hear a lot about the you are dead part. Ellen White chose, and I would say wisely chose, to present the Reformation and its leading characters in a positive and faith-building light. And without intending any disrespect whatsoever for any of them, for the simple reason that they were all better men than I am, they were yet men. And they did fall short at times and in ways. We have the great principles. Sola Scriptura. Bible alone. Never let go of that. Sola Fide. Faith. Trust the simplicity of that. It is faith and it is faith alone. It is a faith that purifies itself by love, but it is faith alone. Well, some of the prominent aspects of the Reformation here. Let's just go through these quickly. Some of these great quotes. Don't you love these quotes? I shall not die, <laughs> but live, and again declare the evil deeds of the friars. John Wycliffe. And he did. Most joyfully will I wear this crown of shame for thy sake, O Jesus, who for me didst wear a crown of thorns. And John Huss went to the fires of the stake singing. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. To pray well is the better half of study. If ever monk could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. <laughs> the just shall live by faith. I am in God's hands. He is my strength and my shield. What can man do to me? Here I stand, I can do no other. May God help me, amen. <clears throat> Let us reject this decree. In matters of conscience, the majority has no power. Play the man, Master Ridley. 
We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Do you know where and when that was said? <laughs> Just before the fires were lit. I've always enjoyed that line. Play the man, Master Ridley. There is a call in scripture. There is a call in God's service to rise to higher heights. To do more than we can humanly do. To play the man in Christ Jesus. The full stature of the man. I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of scripture than you do. The power of the word. In an age when the Bible was not readily available, that was a serious threat. Historians, in looking at the Reformation, have divided the reformers into two categories. Um, you know, scholars always want to try and get a handle on something so they can understand it. And so we speak of the magisterial reformers and the radical reformers. I want to make an adjustment here. I'm sorry. There we go. <coughs> The name magisterial doesn't come from, well, it sort of comes from majesty. It, it comes from magistrate. And it has to do with the working relationship, shall we say, the understanding between the reformers and the reformation, uh, the element of it that they represented, and the rulers of whatever territory they were in. The magisterial reformers are the ones who, in one way or another, and there were variations, developed a fairly tight, shall we say, working relationship with the political powers. The radical reformers did not. And they chose not to. Sometimes, Sometimes they displayed less than perfect wisdom in their handling of matters. But it's an interesting dis division. It's an interesting distinction to be made between the magisterial and the radical reformers. And there's something to be learned from this. Martin Luther, early on in the process of the Reformation, made this comment. He said, be it known to your highness that I am going to Wittenberg under protection of a higher than that of princes and electors. There is no sword that can further this cause. God alone must do everything without the help or concurrence of man. Wait, can I put this up here? Can I? Yeah, I think I can. I'm just going to pop this up here.
make it a little bit easier. There we go. <clears throat> Luther, at this point in his experience, said, this is God's problem. Remember examples of this in Scripture. You know, we don't need the royal protection. It's an interesting concept. <clears throat> There's an aspect of this that I, I haven't found much discussed within Adventism, and so it's, it's kind of interesting, and I want to just touch on it as we go past. Prior to the establishment of the New Testament church, all societies had been sacral in nature. Okay? Fancy word. All it means is that the society itself was bound together by common spiritual beliefs and it, defined, and it was defined geographically. So you had the Empire of Babylon. And they knew where their boundaries were. Probably a little fuzzy on the very edges, but they basically knew what their boundaries were. And they knew what their belief system was. Marduk and Bel. You had the empires, uh, the empire of, of Rome. And yeah, their boundaries fluctuated. <laughs> but they knew, and within the Roman territory, they knew who the one important deity was. That was Caesar. You may remember the, um, the story of the priest during the intertestamental period where the representative of Rome came demanding everyone to sacrifice. And he said, I will not. Started quite a war, actually. But this was a, this was a formula. This was the only way people had of looking at things was that society is held together within a given geographical territory by a common set of beliefs. And then Jesus came and proved to be something of a thorn in the flesh of some of the local authorities. And so one day they said, let's put him in his place. Let's give him a problem that he can't solve. So they came and they said, tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? They had no good answer for that question. They could not conceive of a geography that was not bound together by a common set of spiritual loyalties. And Jesus, you kind of love this, he said, is that a problem? Show me a penny. <laughs> Whose picture do you think that is? Pay what is Caesar's and pay what is God's. It's not a problem. And the Pharisees went away speechless. They didn't even have the mental equipment to process the concept. I mean, it's like, well, how, how can you do that? But it wasn't, it's, it's not easy to change our thinking as human beings. We, we, we get stuck in our ruts pretty readily. And after the days of Christ, it was natural 
natural is not always good. It was natural for the church to fall back into a sacral mentality. And when the church tried to carry on, carry forward that sacral formula of the structure of community, it created huge problems. The word Catholic, you probably know, means worldwide. So despite the fact that Asia was still kind of over there not being touched to any great degree, we had the Catholic Church that claimed worldwide dominion. That poses some challenges. How can the Catholic Church disfellowship anyone? They spent a lot of time thinking about that. If your church takes in the whole world, how do you kick someone out of the church? And they came up with a perfectly logical and very functional, and it worked for quite a while, type of a response. Seriously, I'm not kidding. <laughs> That's why they killed heretics. You had to get them out of the church. And what else are you going to do with them? Jesus had not really entrusted with his church the privilege of killing people. And so this, this created problems. <clears throat> the Protestants, how did they handle this problem? Well, to a large extent, this is the basis for the distinction between the magisterial and the radical reformers. And so the answer of how they handled the problem was in various ways. When the magisterial reformers and their followers slid away from Luther's original position that the sword of political powers had nothing to do with the work of the gospel, and they gradually accepted the protection of rulers, it was natural for them to think of everyone in their political realm as now being Protestant, whether they agreed with the Reformation or not. This was deadly because it undermined the whole concept of church discipline. Now, every drunk, thief, liar, murderer, prostitute, what else have we got? Yeah, they were all church members. What was that? A helpful, <laughs> a helpful thought? <laughs> Anyhow, every, every sinner in your country was a member of your church. And, oh yeah, you could, you know, uh, deport them, and that was done sometimes. But deportation is an expensive process. 
this issue led to some really awkward situations, like the one on the screen here. The Anabaptists have the semblance of outward piety to a far greater degree than we and all the other churches, which in union with us confess Christ. And they avoid the offensive sins that are very common among us. That was the reformed preachers of the city of Bern. Protestants. Hmm. Among the existing sects, there is none that in appearance leads a more modest or pious life than do the Anabaptists. As to their outward life, they are without reproach. No lying, deception, swearing, strife, harsh language, no intemperate eating or drinking, no outward personal display, but humility, patience, uprightness, neatness, honesty, temperance, straightforwardness, in such a measure that one would suppose that they had the Spirit of God. <laughs> But we know they don't because they're not Catholics. This was a frequent source of embarrassment. For both the Catholics and the Protestants. And the radical reformers found themselves in that really deadly area we call no man's land catching fire from both sides in the battle. The Catholics would happily kill the radical reformers, as would the Protestants after a certain time. And so I want to go back and reiterate something I said before. Human beings are inevitably and invariably human. And you will find things that you will wish they hadn't done. That does not always mean that we should disparage them, disregard them, tear them down, or in any sense overlook the contributions that they have made. There's a a good saying. I think it has a lot of wisdom to it. It says, hindsight is twenty-twenty. It's a lot easier examining circumstances and issues from, you know, a hundred years downstream. I would wager that we are probably no brighter than they were back then. And when I read their writings, no offense, but I think they probably win hands down. <laughs> we can and we should honor all that they did by way of progress from where they had come from. And the fact that someone stubbed his toe later on does not negate the value of the, the good that he's done. And so I, I don't want to in any sense disparage any of the Reformation leaders. But there are beautiful stories to be told from the radical reformers. Somehow, just probably because of great converts, I'm guessing. Yeah, and bear in mind, I just, want to, I just want you to explore this a little bit more. When Ellen White wrote Great Controversy, there was a much stronger 
sectarian loyalty to these men. The Lutherans, Luther, he's my man, you know. The Wesleyans, mm-hmm, you know. The Calvinists, yeah, okay. There was a lot of loyalty to these guys, and it would have been foolish for Ellen White to go out and attack them. And so you will find that the Great Controversy covers each of them and covers and presents only their contributions. I think maybe because of the Great Controversy and because it focuses that direction, we, as Adventists, tend to not know that much about the radical reformers. And perhaps especially, I would start off with the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were the most prominent of these groups. The word Anabaptist just means baptized again. Why were they baptized again? Because they'd all been sprinkled when they were babies. <laughs> okay? And of course, from the Catholic Church and from the civil society, that's all that mattered. That's what counts. Sprinkle, sprinkle. You're a good Catholic. You're a member of the citizenry of Saxony or of Flanders or wherever it is. Okay? You, by, the, by virtue of your baptism, you are now a citizen and a member of the Catholic Church. This is all that counts. And these guys that come along and baptize people again, well, that's just nonsense. It's worse than that, actually, from the sacral point of view. It's utter, it, it's totally destructive of the, the bedrock of society. You can't be doing that. But the radical reformers, they said that the church should be composed of those who believe in Jesus. <laughs> the ones who choose to follow him. The ones who choose, as he asked them, to be baptized. Choose, as opposed to mindlessly submit when you're two days old. Choose to be baptized. Only those who choose to belong should be the members of the body of Christ. Well, yeah, you can see how that might cause offense in, in Catholic circles. <laughs> because by saying that, they were effectively saying, I'm sorry, but none of you have joined God's church. What hope of salvation do you have in that position? And so it was a bit of a bit of an issue, shall we say. So the Anabaptists are perhaps the most prominent of these, and I'd just like to go through a simple story. The story of their beginnings. In fifteen twenty two in the city of Zurich, Ulrich Zwingli and a group of young scholars began meeting in the home of Felix Manns to study the Bible. Zwingli was a priest, 
Catholic priest. But he and his friends said, I want to know what God's word says. So they began to study. January of 1523, the next year, Zwingli was very clear in his conclusions at that point. They must base all their actions on the Bible. And if necessary, they must be willing to suffer for their choices. He was very clear on that. By the end of that year, opposition from what was known as the small and the large council, the civic structures of, the, of Zurich, Zwingli announced his acceptance for a time at least of the mass. Now in between, I, I, there's one thing I don't have listed there, there was what was known as the first disputation, a, a kind of a debate type of thing. And Zwingli carried the day in that one, and the Council of Zurich said, we think you're right. And they separated from the Catholic Church. But by the end of the year, the councils, small and large, felt like this was maybe going a little too far, a little too fast. They wanted to kind of put the brakes on things, and they said, whoa, 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 this, no. Okay, we, we, we already cut off the Pope. But the Mass? You can't do away with Mass. You can't do away with infant baptism. How will we know who's a church member if you don't baptize the babies? And so, I think probably with good motives and intentions, Zwingli said, we will take this as an incremental position. And for a time, we'll put up with this. We'll accept it for a time. Now, the, the unfortunate reality is that Zwingli never managed to move beyond that. He never overcame the opposition that he was encountering in the, the civil structures there. And he never, he never moved beyond that position, and so consequently his own position hardened into that spot. But his friends, they were the radicals. In 1524, several of the younger men that Zwingli had studied with began to advocate separation of church and state and the idea of a believer's church. No infant baptism. Now at this point in time, the concept of separation of church and state was like, how huh, what? <laughs> how do you even do that? You can't do that. You try to do that, the whole society is going to fall to shreds. It's never been done. You can't do that. And so these four young men rather quickly found themselves in the proverbial hot water. January 17, 1525, the first baptismal disputation 
placed Zwingli in opposition to Conrad Grable and Felix Mons, two of, his, two of his former students. Everything they knew, they learned from Zwingli. Four days later, January 21, Conrad Blaurock, another one of the young men, asked George Grable to baptize him. This was the first non-governmental baptism in about a thousand years. It was completely illegal. <laughs> it was beyond illegal. It was despicable. This ought not to be done. So they said. George Grable baptized Conrad, and then Conrad Baptized George. <laughs> you have to get started somewhere, I guess. <laughs> well, January 21, things happened rapidly. The next four days, or seven days, next week, Grable, Blaurock, and Felix Mons went a few miles south of Zurich to the little village of Zilikon, Zolikon. I love that name. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I don't know why. It sounds like a very low budget science fiction movie from the 1950s, you know? <laughs> but this is the village of Zolikon. It was a few miles south of town, just simple villagers. Shepherds, vineyardists, nobody, nobody high and mighty. They began to evangelize the villagers, and they were well received. The villagers said, that makes sense, actually. That actually makes sense. It didn't last long, two days later. George Blaurock, Conrad Grable, Felix Mons, and about 20 others from Zolikon were imprisoned in Zurich. Being a radical reformer carried a quick, decisive, and steep price tag. February 8, all the prisoners from Zolokhan were released after taking an oath that they would not baptize anymore. Blaurock and Mainz remained in prison. <coughs> they recanted. They apostatized. They knew that their wives and children were starving. Eleven days later, at a private home in Zurich, uh, I think I may have missed something. Did I miss something? 
Uh, okay, Blaurock and Mainz remained in prison. I think I lost a slide there somehow or the other. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact date. It would be February 8th. I think it was 10 days later, so on the 18th of February. Uh, Blaurock and Mainz escaped. They, they broke out of prison. <laughs> okay. So the next night, February 19, at a private home in Zurich where Blaurock stayed the night, his host, Anton Roggenocker, or something close to that, requested baptism. George complied. A month later, March 1525, George Blaurock, his wife, and 19 others from Zolokhan were arrested. He had gone back to Zolokhan, gone back to his flock, and had preached forgiveness. And they had redetermined that they would follow the Lord, whatever the cost. But the 19 soon recanted. And the Blaurocks were banished from Zurich, i.e., they were disfellowshipped. That was one advantage of being a Protestant. You didn't actually have to kill them in every case because there was some place beyond the border. You could shove them. <clears throat> Later that year, evangelistic activity in the surrounding area proved dangerous but fruitful. Blaurock, Grable, Mainz, taking their lives in their hands, went ahead. Blaurock and Grable arrested and placed in prison once again. 23 days later, Felix Mainz was arrested and joined them in prison. The next week was held the third disputation on baptism. It was held in the Grossmünster Cathedral in Zurich, which was Zwingli's church. To no one's surprise, Zwingli is declared the winner of the debate. No one's surprise. Pardon? His opponents were in jail, right? <laughs> yeah. Grable, Blaurock, and Mainz are sentenced to prison indefinitely on a diet of bread and water. Not particularly generous supplies either, from the way the story reads. This is November, December, January, February, March. Four months later, bread and water, four months later, they had a second trial. And the three are sentenced to life in prison on bread and water. The bread and water routine had the advantage of cutting down on maintenance costs for prisoners, both short-term and certainly long-term, because they couldn't live for long on that. Fifteen days later, 
prisoners escaped. But Blaurock and Manz are recaptured and imprisoned in the Ketzerturm, the heretic's tower. Weakened by the imprisonment, Grable soon dies of the plague. <clears throat> Six months, seven months later, Conrad Grable's father, Jacob, not an Anabaptist, but he stood up and he said, this is ridiculous. We shouldn't be persecuting people for their religious beliefs. Not what I was told. <laughs> Double check for me. Okay, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I was told 1124. Can you double check that? Uh, because we will have to do some serious adjusting if that's uh, the revised figure. Let's go on. December 14, 1526, Felix Mons drowned the, in the Limat. It's the river. They said, you like baptism? You like water so much? We'll help you. They took him out, tied his hands together, put them over his knees, put a stick through underneath, and rolled him off the barge. His mother stood on the banks of the river shouting encouragement to her son, not to the executioners. Blaurock is beaten through the streets of Zurich and banished from the canton. Three years later, he is tortured and finally burned at the stake. March 6, 1531. We jumped five years right there. Ulrich Zwingli's alliance of Protestant cantons declares war on the five Catholic cantons, but lose the Battle of Kuppel. Among the dead were Zwingli, many from the council, and five former Anabaptists from Zolikon. The Anabaptists said, no, we do not fight. Zwingli said, yes, we do take the sword. We are, after all, the magistrates. In his society, the priests carried that kind of power, too. The radicals said, no, we don't. It didn't work well for Zwingli. But sadly, despite being the birthplace of the movement, the village of Zolokan never had an Anabaptist church. They never could surmount the opposition, the persecution. There are lessons there. We have so much we have yet been tested on. We have had cushy lives. Go switch gears. New group of believers. The Moravians. These were the spiritual descendants of John Huss. When a great council of the Roman Catholic Church met at Constance in 1414, the Pope ordered Jan Huss to appear. He was seized and locked in the dungeon of a Dominican monastery there after a stormy trial and a public burning of his books. They set a paper cap on his head with the words, Hic est heresiarca. This is the chief of heretics. And they burned him too. Back in Moravia, they just lost their champion. But in 1419, war broke out. 40,000 Hussites against the Catholic armies. The Lord used a blind general by the name of Johann Ziska to rally the farmers and the peasants against 10,000 imperial troops. 
100,000. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I lost a zero there. Okay. 100,000. Ziska was blind, but he'd grown up in the area. He knew the place like the, why did they say the back of the hand? I spend more time looking at the front of my hands. But anyhow, he knew the, he knew the territory like his own hand. And he'd sit up on top of a hill and say, so where are they? What are they doing? Well, they're circling around this. Oh, I'll tell our guys to go this way. No, no, no. Send half of them that way. <laughs> and they, time after time after time, the Lord, much like the battles of the Bible, the Catholics, the imperial forces would come face to face with them, throw down their weapons and turn and flee. The Hussites successfully defended their lands time and time again. The Catholics gave up in 1432. Having achieved peace with their enemies, the Hussites promptly got into an argument amongst themselves. They split into two groups, the Utraquists and the Taborites. By 1452, the Taborites had been annihilated. While the two main groups were busy killing each other, others, more or less descended from the poor men of Lyon and the Waldenses, were trying to live as Christians. Put away your sword. <laughs> it worked for a while. By 1471, all the leaders of the small group had been killed, some by the Catholics, some by the Hussites. The ones who were left scattered and hid. And then they came back. In 1480, a large group of German Waldenses chased from the Konigsberg region by the Catholic forces arrived in Moravia. They brought nothing but the clothes on their backs and the German language. They were penniless. The little church had now chosen a name. They called themselves Utricus Fratrum, the unity of brothers. They welcomed the newcomers. The Hussites, of course, did not. For 200 years, the group in Moravia prospered, almost died out under persecution. Prospered, died out. Prospered, died out. And then they pretty much stayed dead. Except for the memories of a few old peasants. About 1715, a Catholic boy working for a carpenter in Moravia asked his boss's son to teach him the alphabet. Then in the eaves of the house, he found a book written many years before by the carpenter's ancestors. He read it over and over. It made sense but it was nothing like he had ever seen or heard of. It talked about Christians who lived like Jesus had lived. But to do that in Moravia would be fatal. For several years he traveled looking for a place of safety. In 1722, the carpenter, Christian David was his name, finally found the promised land. He met a German count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, who offered a part of his estate to any Moravian refugees who chose to come. He expected a dozen or so. <laughs> Zinzendorf, right about that time, went off on an extended trip, the purpose of which was to get married, among other things. And when he came back, he was in for a bit of a surprise. Christian David risked his life and went back to see his friends in Moravia. They remembered so little. 
But they did remember grandfather's prophecy. One old man on his deathbed gathered his sons around. And he said, I believe God will take the hidden seed of the Unitas Fratrum and lead you out of this land to a place of safety where you may live as Jesus lived. And they remembered that. They didn't, they didn't really understand it. They didn't understand a lot of the theology of it, but they'd hung on to the memory. They fled on May 27, the night of the full moon, on foot. They left everything behind. Had they been caught, they would have been killed. Over the next two years, Christian David returned to Moravia time after time to guide small groups to the growing settlement. More than 90 families, all of the old Waldensian or Unity stock, moved to Germany. They named their new village Herrenhut, the place of God's care, the Lord's care, the place where the, the Lord watches over. They built a little village. They started a little church. Notice the date. I'm going to back up once here. May 27, let's get the year. Oh, boy, I'm sorry. I'm having to back up. I think it's 22. Yeah, 1722. Notice that year. 1722, the first of these refugees abandoned everything and moved to a new land. In 1727, five years, the young people went to the elders of the community, and they said, we are not obeying the Lord. And the elders said, what are you talking about? They said, Christ told us to go to the world, and we're doing nothing but making our homes better. And the elders said, we are refugees. We still have new people joining us every so often. We have to build houses. We have to take care of our own. We appreciate your sentiment, but this is not the time. Five more years passed. In 1732, the dam burst. Leonard Dober, an 18-year-old potter, was sent to witness to the slaves in the island of St. Thomas. In order to reach them, he became a slave himself. He spent a full year. Only in the closing weeks of the year did he have his first convert, an eight-year-old boy. Others came. He returned. Others came. For 50 years, the Moravians labored in the West Indies without any aid from any other religious denomination. They established churches on St. Thomas, St. Croix, St. John's, Jamaica, Antigua, Barbados, and St. Kitts. One local congregation, never more than 2,000 members, sent out wave after wave after wave of missionaries. By 1782, they had 13,000 baptisms. William Carey, the father of modern missions, sailed to Calcutta in 1793. 
I'm not sure why the Moravians get no credit, except perhaps that they were still the radical reformers. 13,000 baptisms. This is only in the islands. But it didn't come easily. In those 50 years, from one church, 47 missionaries had died of tropical fevers and 20 had been murdered. 67 missionaries. From one church. One church! <laughs> but if you take the 13,000 baptisms and divide them by 67, it's 194 converts per martyr, per fatality. What have I done with my life? How many souls have I won? A hundred and ninety-four. First time I read this story, I couldn't believe it. I came to a conclusion. There are things that are well worth dying for. It doesn't matter. And yet it seems so hard for us, for me. That was just the islands. Other Moravians began mission work in Greenland, Suriname, South Africa, Guinea, Ceylon, Bucharest, St. Petersburg, and Cairo, all within 15 years, 25 years of being refugees out of Moravia <clears throat> from a single church. We don't hear much about them. You do find a story in the book Great Controversy that tells about them. In 1736, a young minister from England sailed to Georgia on the Simmons. It was a tough voyage with one particularly bad storm he was afraid. But the Moravians on board with him were not. They just kept singing. Three years later, John Wesley studied with another Moravian and was converted. You perhaps remember the story. Wesley was ill, appeared to be on his deathbed. And David Nimitz, uh, that doesn't sound quite right. It's pretty close. David Nitten, something like that. Starts with an M. Was visiting him. And he said, John, Brother John, how is it with your soul? And he said, it is well with my soul. He says, in what do you trust? And he said, I have expended my best labors in the Lord's cause. And his friend said not a word, but Wesley saw the look. And he said, what? Would you take from me my best labors? In what then should I hope? It is not our best labors. It is our faith in Christ. After recovering, the Lord mercifully allowed that, Wesley studied with the Moravians and says he was converted. Partially because of the work of 
the Moravian missionaries in the Caribbean, England outlawed slavery in 1838, some odd years before other countries we might mention. When that happened, 312,000 slaves on the island of Jamaica prepared to celebrate. Thousands of them were baptized believers. Clothed in white, they gathered at their chapels, shouting, if the sun shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I am humbled as I read these stories. I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated. I so much want to get in the war. And somehow it seems I've become a professional and perpetual consumer of news reports from the war. I want to read one more story. This backs up in time. Back to the year seven, no, 1573. In 1573, the authorities raided an Anabaptist meeting in the town of Antwerp, Holland. They captured a young couple, Jan and Janneken von Munstorp. Jan and Janneken von Munstorp. They'd been married a year. From his prison cell, Jan wrote a letter to his wife. An affectionate greeting to you, my beloved wife, whom I love from the heart and greatly cherish above every other creature and must now forsake for the truth, for the sake of which we must count all things loss and love him above all. I hope, though men separate us here, that the Lord will again join us together in his eternal kingdom where no one will be able to part us and we shall reign forever in the heavenly abode. Adieu and farewell. My lamb, my love. Adieu and farewell to all that fear God. Adieu and farewell until the marriage of the lamb in the new Jerusalem. Be valiant and of good cheer. Cast the troubles that assail you upon the Lord, and he will not forsake you. Cleave to him, and you will not fall. Love God above all. Have love and truth. Love your salvation. And keep your promises to the Lord. Jan was executed, burning at the stake. Yonikin was spared temporarily, allowed to bear her child. Soon after her husband's martyrdom, she gave birth to a little daughter. 
to whom she gave her own name. Before her death, also at the stake, Yannickin wrote a moving letter to her little child. The letter set forth the familiar 16th century Anabaptist belief in the reality of the cross of the Christian disciple. After reporting how her parents had died and entreating her not to be ashamed of her executed parents, she continued her letter thus. My young lamb, for whose sake I have had and still have great sorrow, seek when you have attained your understanding this narrow way, though there is sometimes much danger in it according to the flesh. We may see if we diligently examine and read the scriptures that much is said concerning the cross of Christ. There are many in this world who are enemies of the cross, who seek to escape it. But my dear child, if we would with Christ seek and inherit eternal salvation, we must also help bear his cross. And this is the cross which he would have us bear to follow in his footsteps and to help bear his reproach. For Christ himself says, you shall be persecuted, killed, and dispersed for my name's sake. Yea, he himself went before us in this way of reproach and left us an example that we should follow in his steps. For his sake, all must be forsaken. Father, mother, sister, brother, husband, child, yea, one's own life. And my dear child, this is my request of you since you are still very little and young. I wrote this when you were but one month old. As I am now soon to offer up my sacrifice by the help of the Lord, I leave you this that you fulfill my request, always uniting with them that fear God, and do not regard the pomp and boasting of the world nor the great multitude whose way leads to the abyss of hell. I leave you here. Oh, that it had pleased the Lord that I might have brought you up. I should so gladly have done my best with respect to it, but it seems that it is not the Lord's will. Though it had not come thus, and I had remained with you for a time, the Lord could still have taken me from you. And then, too, you should have to be without me, even as it is now gone with your father and myself, that we could live together but so short a time, when we were so well joined, since the Lord had so well mated us that we would not have forsaken each other for the whole world. And yet we had to leave each other for the Lord's sake. So I must also leave you here, my dearest lamb. The Lord that created you and made you now takes me from you. It is his holy will. I must now pass through this narrow way which the prophets and martyrs of Christ passed through who died here for Christ. And now they wait under the altar 
till their number shall be fulfilled. Of which number your dear father is one, and I am now on the point of following him. I herewith commend you to the Lord, and to the comforting word of his grace, and bid you adieu once more. I hope to wait for you. Follow me, my dearest child. Once more, adieu, my dearest upon earth. Adieu, and nothing more. Adieu, follow me. Adieu, and farewell. It's hard to get through that. We don't know anything yet. I'd like to share with one last thing. It's a picture. Okay. I'm sorry. We just have to adjust that. There we go. It's a picture. There's probably no way of actually measuring this, but I would nominate this as probably the most influential picture of the last 500 years. The one picture that has probably done more good for the world than any other that I know anything of. It's a picture that appeared in a book and has through reprint after reprint after reprint. The book is a book I recommend to you. It's called The Martyr's Mirror. Adventists aren't too familiar with it. The Martyr's Mirror. It's the Anabaptist version of Fox's Book of Martyrs. John Fox, good man that he was, wouldn't count Anabaptists. He was not a radical. They were, and that was a problem. It's a picture of Dirk Willems. Dirk Willems was a peasant. An Anabaptist, he was arrested, thrown into jail, but he escaped. It seems like jails were not that high-tech in those days. <laughs> he escaped, and he was running for his life. The officers of the law were on his trail. He was on foot. Some of them, at least, were on horses. He had the advantage of knowing the land. It was winter, and he knew there was a lake. The ice should be thick enough. Perhaps he could get across, and the horses would not. So he ran to the lake. He went dashing across. I don't know if you've ever been on thin ice, but you know it when you are. It gives, and it plays, and it creaks, and it cracks, and it's spooky stuff. And his pursuers came to the shore, and one of them followed him on foot. 
across the lake. He made it. He reached the other side. He was heading up into the, I don't know what was up or what, but he was heading away. And he heard a crack. And he heard a scream. And he turned around. And he went back. And he pulled that man from the ice. He took his jacket off and put it around his shoulders. The horseman had gone around the lake by this time. The man he had rescued pled for his life. He said, he is a good man. Let him go. He was burned at the stake the next day. And that picture has been seared into the mind of every Anabaptist child who's ever lived, because they all read that book. And I commend it to you. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. There are things worth dying for. Powerheads. Father, we are pleased. We are happy. We are perhaps awestruck to find that simple men and women can live the way Jesus did. When push comes to shove. Father, we pray that this great cloud of witnesses would inspire us. That we might take the simple lessons that it is always best to be Christ-like. We may at times be confused with various points of theology, and that's not all bad, but help us never to be confused on what Jesus is like. And may we represent him well in all that we do, I pray, in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.